And uh, it's lovely to be uh, with you this evening. Although, if you were a biblical church, I should be dead by now. I should have been dragged outside when I arrived and be stoned in the car park because I confidently predicted that the English batting would not be victorious and probably would have collapsed by half eleven. So my prophetic gifting clearly is in some question. Um, I've really felt the Holy Spirit give me a completely different steer on where, what we did this morning. So this morning we started with a sketch where I recommend uh, Mr. Tim Grew's acting skills very highly. Um, and you can catch that uh, if you look at the uh, recording from this morning. So if nothing else, it will make you look at the, the live feed um, from this morning. Um, I was invited to talk about fruitfulness on the front line uh, with the hand grenade of a subtitle, messenger of the gospel. And I know that probably casts and creates lots of different thoughts in our mind as to what the messenger of the gospel is. But the word of the Lord I have for you today, which is the same as this morning, is just simply this. You are the message. You are the message. I'm also going to start with a scripture that I didn't anticipate starting with, but I think it's in the flow of where we've been. And the band did a marvellous job in sensing the presence of God here this evening. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but the Spirit's power. And when we talk about being a messenger for the gospel, I've noticed, especially in the online communities, that there has been a leaning towards debating and arguing people into the kingdom of God. Whether that's creation versus evolution, whether that's the existence of a conscience or the laws of physics, however that's done, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the gentleman who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, attempted this in Athens, and it went really badly. So I'm figuring if Apostle Paul says, I gave that up to concentrate on the thing that matters most, Jesus Christ and him crucified, I think I'm going to take a leaf out of his book, because I think he knows probably more about it than I do. In fact, I know he knows he knew more about it than I do. So 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians is a scripture we looked at um, if we could call that up. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, chapter 2, and he says, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. And that is so important that you and I realize that we are the message. Because when we hear the phrase, messenger of the gospel, we think of somebody who's interrupting our Saturday shop, perhaps. Standing at a street corner, telling everybody very loudly that they're all sinners and they're all going to hell. 
Perhaps that's our idea of a messenger of a gospel. I've, and bless them, they're clearly doing what they feel God has called them to do. I have to say, my observation is, it's, if it makes me as a believer feel uncomfortable, how is it making everybody else feel? Is it drawing people in? So I'm going to share a little bit about my story this evening. And then we're going to look at some scriptural basis for what I'm sharing in that we are the messengers, but we are the message. I came to know Jesus in 1990 at the age of 21. Um, And I think it's important that I share with you, and I really sense the Holy Spirit, that, that particular season in my life. So, gambling addict. Spent years of 16 to 18, 19 on the fruit machines, and as soon as I could get into the betting shops, I went into them. Uh, at a time, folks, at a time in the 90s, 80s and 90s, it was hard to gamble. It wasn't as easy, nowhere near as easy as it is today. And the thought of giving up gambling actually frightened me. And when I came to know Jesus, and when I invited him into my life, shortly after that, I went through some powerful ministry. And I appreciate I'm in an Anglican church, and it might be a bit disturbing to hear this, but I can tell you that I had demons cast out of me, and I felt them go. I felt the entity leave, the power of the Holy Spirit come upon me, and and I involuntarily started praising God. It must have been God, because it wasn't a praise and worship song I particularly liked, if I'm honest. And from that moment, I'm not struggling against gambling, walking out of a betting shop, go wherever you like. The desire left. It hasn't returned. I have been set free. Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. I can tell you that is my experience. But having gone through that dynamic transformation, I then suffered from what the psychologists would call the Dunning-Kruger effect. Anyone come across the Dunning-Kruger effect? The Dunning-Kruger effect is when we learn a little bit about a subject, we tend to think we know all there is to know about it. There's a former president of the United States who's quite guilty of this. I, I've learned something about it, and now I know all there is to know about it. So having experienced the dynamis power of God, look out, world, here I come, you lucky people. I've got it all sussed, and you'll need Jesus to set you free. which, to a greater or lesser degree, wasn't well received. (laughs) But I absolutely went whole hog for Jesus. When I wasn't reading the Bible, when I wasn't praying, when I wasn't at church meetings, my mind was focused on, how can I please him? He has done so much for me. How can I serve him? How can I love him? And yet, as I'll share with you shortly, the zeal of that came with a blessing, but also not so much of a blessing. And that's why it's so important that we remember that we are the message. And what I mean by that is it's about who we are when we're with the lost, not quite so much what we say. So having gone through this powerful deliverance experience, having gone whole hog for God, I'm working in the shop floor of a rubber factory. And I've got a revelation of, and uh, Nick brought it beautifully tonight, how God and the kingdom of God works financially and started doing those things, and that's not for today, but started doing those things that God showed me to do. And then I got a job in sales. 
And then God blessed that job in sales to the point where I was a top salesperson. I can tell you, folks, I'm not a good salesperson. I really am not. It had to be God because there were far better salespeople in that organization. Then got promoted to a sales manager. And in 2008, the company asked me to effectively lead the business. And from 2008 to 2022, in, that, in those 14 years, God blessed us so that the business increased fourfold, the profitability increased 25-fold, and we sold the business last year for over 100 million pounds. And that goes, the, trust me, I'm not capable of that. That is absolutely going to the glory of that goes to the Lord. But on my journey, I've learned some lessons which I'd like to share with you. And we'll start with the next scripture, please. Which you might think, that's a bit of an odd scripture to bring up. John 4 says, Jesus says, talking to his disciples, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap for what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have benefited from their labor. So the question I have is, who are these others? Jesus says, one sows and another reaps, is true. I tell you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. Who are the others? Is he talking about angels? What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about men and women of God. If we think about the agricultural cycle, the harvest is very short, a week probably at most, leaving 52 weeks or 98% of the year to do the sowing and the fertilizing and the weeding and the tending and the caring and the watering. So how are we, as believers, helping those who are doing the harvesting? The frustration of the evangelist is that we all should be evangelizing. I liken it to the extrovert standing up on the stage, bemoaning all the introverts for not being extroverts in church. But remember, Jesus is talking to 12 disciples who had to be evangelists. That had to be their primary call. He's starting the church. You're going to start with evangelists. And those 12 guys and the 72 in Luke then go out and share the word and do the harvesting. But the harvest was created by the behavior, the character, the presence of God resting upon the people that were rubbing shoulders with. Having experienced being in the business world, as a salesperson, as a, as a businessman and a business leader, I've met lots of business people. And I've met quite a few Christian business people. Can I tell you, on the whole, my experience has not been good. And that's being polite. I said this morning, for many of the Christians I met in business, it would have been better for the kingdom had they not shared that they were a Christian. It would have been more fruitful. Because the world is looking for an answer. As soon as you put your head above the parapet in the workplace, in, in education, in the health sector, in the public service, wherever you are, 
As soon as you put your head above that parapet, I know Jesus, however you want to express that, then the magnifying glass and the telescope comes out. I'm not apologizing for that. It's the way it is. Get used to it. But it's because the world is looking for an answer. There's a lady called, who's not a Christian lady, her name's Jean Twenge, and she has been studying, um, there's a school district in Minnesota, in the northwest of, in the well, middle of America, by the Great Lakes. And they have been surveying young people, teenage people, since 1938, up until the present day. And she was analyzing this study, was well, creating these surveys into a study. 1938. We had tuberculosis, polio. Life expectancy at that time would have been around 50, 60. You certainly didn't get into old age, typically. You would have had an outside toilet. You probably wouldn't have had the bathroom hills. You would have been in a tin bath, and it would have been had to be warmed up um, by a fire. You'd had no television, no radio, no distraction. And yet, as she studied this, she then applied the diagnosis that looking at the surveys, looking for people who would be regarded as clinically depressed. And today, that number is six times what it was in 1938. Not 6% higher, not a bit higher, six times. We're living in an absolute crisis where the, where the darkness of the world is attacking especially the young people. And this is why we have the mental health crisis, because we turned our back on God and we said, we don't need you, Jesus. We can do it. We can, we can um, have a fairer society. We can work it out ourselves. We can, or the living wage, minimum wage was the answer, then living wage is the answer. Now, no, well, okay, that, we're going to have to have universal basic income. We're going to have to go to four days a week. Can I tell you, that will not bring peace. It will not bring contentment that only comes through Jesus and knowing him. And that's the message that we need to bring. But we can't bring it if we're living a life like the world. And in my experience with the, in the business community, I came across Christians who would swear like troopers, who would go back on their word, who would watch on their debts who would break agreements and lie to you. Do you think the world is not seeing that or noticing that? Because they're looking for a difference. They're looking for something that works. They're looking for something to say, actually, there is something different about you. You are carrying something that actually oh, what I want. Go to the next scripture in Mark chapter 5, which is... Probably a more familiar one to you all. Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everything, everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the principle of salt and light. And for many who've been in the way for any length of time, the traditional understanding that the light is who we are and the salt is what we say. And indeed, light is really important. Again, the latest studies would indicate that exposure to natural daylight is something that human beings, we need for health and well-being, which is why you see suicide rates so high in countries which lack natural daylight. And indeed, the lower life expectancy of people working night shifts who aren't exposing to natural daylight. And whilst we need light 12 hours a day, we don't need salt quite so often. You haven't had any salt since you arrived, I don't suspect. Although if you've been in pitch darkness, you would have noticed that, but you wouldn't have had any salt. And if salt is what we speak, can I tell you, my friends, when I first got this dynamic experience of Jesus, boy, was I salty. You were getting salt whether you wanted salt or not. In fact, whatever you wanted, salt was the answer. If I'd been a chef, I'd have been putting in your tea, your coffee, your drinks, your ice cream, your desserts. Salt was going in everything. And I shudder when some of the things that, I, that I've done, because through zeal and thinking I had the right intention, then pretty much if I was sharing the word, then that was okay because I was sharing the word. Saying foolish things to try and be spiritual or finding a way of getting the gospel into a conversation. So my sister-in-law asked me um, whether I would help her and her husband move house. I said, I'll go and pray about it and see what God says. What am I saying to her about the God that I love and serve? I remember going for a job interview as a salesperson. And um, I sat down with the, with, and uh, they said to me, we had the preamble, and they said to me, I'd like you, Ian, to sell me something. I went, oh, not, not that question. If any of you ever go for sales jobs, it's like the lazy sales manager's question. Sell me something. Tell me this pen. Tell me something. What would you like me to sell you? Sell me something that you know something about and you're enthusiastic about. Oh, big mistake. Big mistake. I'm sure I did breathe for the next half an hour, but I don't recall doing so. He got the gospel uphill and down dale for half an hour. He knew he was a sinner. He knew what price had been paid. He knew what he needed to do. I don't think I quite got to end times, but we're certainly heading in that direction. At the end of which he said, thank you very much for that, Ian. I can see you're very enthusiastic about it. We'll let you know. Strangely, they never let me know. And it's so easy to leave in a pious frame of mind to say, well, I shared the gospel and, and it wasn't very well received and that's not my problem, oh God, haven't... No, perhaps I was a complete wally and should have actually been a lot more sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's saying. Because this is real, folks. The Holy Spirit is real and I shouldn't be lazy I should try and listen to what God is saying to me and go with that flow, not try and create. The Bible says to make the most of every opportunity. It doesn't say to make the opportunity. And boy, was I making the opportunity. I remember I started a new job um, at the company where 
um, God blessed me, and I ended up leading it. But in the early days, there were two uh, Mormons in the, in the workforce and the Jehovah's Witness. I mean, that's really right. Okay, I really need to nail my colors to the mast now. I really need to know who, who I am, and I know Jesus, and they need to know that these guys are false prophets, or whatever you want to call it. So in the space of about six weeks, I think most people in the business, 30 or 40 of them, got the gospel whether they wanted it or not. But how does being like that actually help? Was Jesus like that? People came to him and asked him questions. He didn't go to them browbeating them. He asked them questions. Woman, would you get me some water? Well, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. And now he's into sharing the gospel. So when I started, I had a colleague come and sit next to me as we were driving out on the road. And, the and, um, and I thought it would be the appropriate thing to say. He said, when he asked me how I was, I said, the devil's attacking me with a cold, but I'm resisting him. <laughs> okay. If we really desire a harvest... then the fruitfulness on the front line that we should be distributing or sharing is the fruit of Jesus. Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. That, my friends, is what will open the door for you to share about Jesus. That is what allows the Holy Spirit presence to rest on you. I really believe that for some people here tonight, you're struggling because you don't sense that presence when we're out in the world, which is going in the completely other direction, which is throwing so much distraction and oppression at us, that for some of you, you're not experiencing that. And perhaps you've got a habit or perhaps you've got a sin that you can't let go of. People will sense that. People will know. If we're going to be effective ministers of the gospel, it is so important that we carry the presence of God where we go. That we're led by the Holy Spirit. But firstly, that we're people of integrity. And for those of us leading businesses or in positions of... Um, Authority, but even if you're not, and we're in a workplace, how easy is it to get swept along with rebellion, which is effectively talking against the leadership of the business, running down the business, running down our colleagues, talking behind people's backs, coarse joking that we describe as banter. How is that reflecting the personality of Jesus in the workplace? We should be shining as lights. We should be that salt which occasionally says Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He's got a place for you. He's got a future for you without having to browbeat people. It's the Holy Spirit who does the conviction. I certainly think in the first few years of my relationship with God, 
I felt the Holy Spirit needed a bit of a helping hand in the convicting in case the message wasn't getting through properly. So all times I sought, and I made some terrible mistakes, but sought to walk in integrity. And has led the business, caring for the people within the business was the number one priority. Most important people in our business are the people working in the business, not the customers. The most people working in the business they need to be safe, they need to be well rewarded. In the seven years I was managing director, we took the minimum wage from, sorry, the, the minimum pay that somebody was on in the business from £6.50 an hour. And when I left, the lowest paid person was on £12 an hour. Because you don't build good businesses on the backs of people. That's a very short-term, short-sighted. If you experience and share integrity and love and care, guess what? People get quite well motivated and perform better. It's not rocket science, and yet the world is going a completely other way where we have to abuse and manipulate and control people in order to have a business. Well, you won't have a business long, especially in the current climate. So the challenge for us is our lives should be a letter from Christ, that we should be the message. And of course, when we have that Christ-like presence and our words are kind and encouraging, everything goes well and we're well received by everybody, aren't we? Oh no, we're not. Can we have the last scripture up, please? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says... Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong. They, next slide, may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven when he comes. It goes, it goes on to say. But if we leave it on this one. So these are folks... Urge, who are abstaining from simple desires. So they're doing that. They're living good lives. And yet the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong. If you stand up for Jesus, opposition is going to come. But if, you're going to come under, if, we're going to, if I'm going to come under attack, I'd rather come under attack for doing what God wants me to do rather than give the devil a hit that he didn't have coming anyway through my behavior or my attitude or my distance from God. And absolutely, that's my experience. That is my experience. Customers, a customer, we just finished a court case last year that went on for nine years, partway through, where, where we're making this adhesive and they're packing it and what they packed it into made the glue faulty. But the guy wouldn't accept that and blamed us. And he went to the high court. I have been where Prince Harry's been in court. I can tell you, sitting in the witness box for hours isn't fun. I wouldn't recommend it if you were bored one afternoon, having a lawyer try and trip you up. But when you're telling the truth, it's very hard for the lawyer to trip you up. I don't have to have a great memory. I'm just going to tell the truth. But sent, the customer sent me such an email, basically destroying my character, my integrity, and knowing that I'm a person of faith, going for that. What should my response be? Jesus said, and sometimes we don't want to hear this when we're in a bit of a pity party. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I pray for him, Lord, have mercy on him. Have mercy on him. Forgive him. 
bless him, cause him to prosper. Because it's not my problem. It's God's problem. My previous manager director um, suggested that I hired, I want to say suggest, it's probably I haven't underplayed that, um, suggested that I hired his son as a salesperson. I'll leave you to uh, weigh up what suggested means. Which I did, voluntarily, I've got no complaints. But it didn't work out, and after four years, the son walked out of the business. Once I walked out, said I was the problem, walked out, never to uh, darken the door again, never mind give a notice period, just walked out. Now, you can imagine, the managing director, the father, I wasn't going to be uh, super enthusiastic about this. But he actually went to the trouble, even though he was a non-believer, of looking in the Bible for verses he could attack me with on a one-to-one basis. What do I do in that period? What, so what have I got to do? Tears are shed. It's upset. I'm not standing here saying, I've got this all sorted out. Far from it. I'm hoping you'll learn from most, most of the mistakes that I've made in my walk with the Lord. But I walked into a colleague one day and said, do you know what, I've decided what I'm going to do about this. And he said, what are you going to do about it? He said, I'm going to forgive him. He said, Ian, that will drive him nuts if you do that. But that's what I did. And carried on a professional relationship for another four years. Without bearing a grudge. And I have forgiven him. Sometimes it's good to remember these things. And I don't bring them up because I haven't forgiven. I bring them up because it's an example. <laughs> My sales director said, I don't understand, Ian. I know you, you're quite a personable fella. You're not particularly antagonistic. Yet, I know there's quite a few customers who not only don't like you, but really hate you. And one of them hasn't even met you. But that's the spiritual world we're living in. That's when we stick our head above the parapet. That's when we carry the presence of God. If you're walking in the workplace carrying the presence of God, there will be a reaction. There will be a very positive reaction from some people, but there'll be others that will be extremely negative. I remember being in China um, 20 years ago. We're in the backwaters of Huangshan. And there was an employee there. Wouldn't look me in the eye at all. And bearing in mind, they weren't, I wasn't speaking Mandarin and they weren't speaking English. So how could I, how could I, I, I haven't had the opportunity to upset them, not even with sign language. And yet, I just sensed that there's something there. There's something there in that person that meant they were immediately hostile. And this is the spiritual dynamics that we're living in as we draw near to God. We all want to come to the front and experience the presence of God, but that does come with some consequence because this spiritual world is real. I can testify to that. The style of my testimony, that thing left, I felt it go. This is real stuff. But now, how do I share that message? The most encouraging thing I can say to you all is as you carry that presence, as you live your lives to please Jesus and to live your lives to Jesus and please God, God will guide and direct you. He will give you what to say. His presence will rest on you. And at the right time, he will give you the words to speak to that person who asks you, you don't seem to be quite so phased by this cost of living thing. Why, why is that? I don't see you stressed and worrying all the time. and I'm really worried. Why is that? That is when we have the opportunity to explain why we have a hope, rather than browbeating them having met them 30 seconds ago. As I left the company, and I'll finish with this, as I left the company a year ago, they did a kind presentation for me, and I stood up in front of the whole company, 
and I thanked some people who've been tremendously helpful um, in the business. But I said, and now I'm going to make you all feel uncomfortable. Are you ready? Here it comes. I said, I would like to thank and give praise and glory to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without him, I would have been a wholly different person to work for and not in a good way, in a bad way. And as I think about the people that I've met along the way who were hard and dismissive of the gospel, I know they are now more open. And is that, if that is my task, to help the harvest ripen for somebody else to harvest, that's fine. I've played my part. A dour, Lancastrian businessman sent me an email a few years ago to say, Ian, hi, um, just thought I'd like to let you know uh, I got baptised over the weekend. Jeff, really? You baptised? No, I'm saying I was responsible. But had I not lived a godly life, would it have kept him from that place? As I said, for some Christians, it's better that they don't confess to being Christians because of how they live in the workplace and in the world and how they damage the testimony about Jesus Christ. And I will close with this. I do about five or six closes normally. It might be six or seven. When you're sharing Jesus, share your story. Don't exaggerate it. Just be real. Share your story. Revelation tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And if you want to sense the Holy Spirit, when you get the opportunity, just share your story with somebody. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Let's pray. Holy Father, I'm conscious that the word I've brought this evening does come with a challenge. But yet I know how much and how dearly you love the people in this room and those watching online. I pray for them, Father, and for me, that we would live lives blameless so that even though people might accuse us of doing wrong, one day they will give glory to you because of the work you've done in our lives.